Since 2018, more than 250,000 cold cases have accumulated in America due to higher crime rates and the lack of staffing in police departments. Cases go cold for many reasons, from no evidence being present at the crime scene to the lack of technology at the time or the investigators having tunnel vision and excluding other suspects or possibilities due to their strong belief that their number one suspect is the culprit. We live in a technologically driven world today. New ways to solve cold cases are being studied and implemented to crack crimes that have happened nearly a century ago. We found three cases where that very technology has provided justice for victims decades old in 2020. And here are their stories. In 1968, a Jane Doe was found by three young boys playing in a bean field in Huntington Beach. She was wearing a flower print blouse and purple pants. Her shoe size was a 7 and the shoes she was wearing were made in upstate New York. She had suffered multiple injuries, including a fatal cut to her neck. The Jane Doe was discovered only hours after she passed. Teams of cops and young cadets walked side by side through the field she was discovered in, looking for any clues that could point to her assailant. But they found nothing, and worse, there were no closer to identifying her. This would be Orange County's oldest open cold case. In June 2020, 52 years after the murder of our Jane Doe, due to genealogical work, both the victim and the alleged killer have been identified. The woman was identified as Anita Louise Pateau, an aspiring actress who left home and moved from Maine to Southern California to pursue an acting career. Anita was born in Augusta, Maine on March 9, 1942, and was one of three children. A month before Anita's body was discovered, she sent her mother a postcard from Orange County telling her that she was waitressing instead of acting and was planning on coming home later in May. That was the last time her family has heard from her. Throughout the years, her family has searched for her and believed she was still alive. In 2011, Huntington Beach police were able to collect DNA from the flower-printed blouse Anita was wearing at the time of her death. The sample was submitted for processing along with her profile for familial search in the CODIS database. For those of you not familiar with CODIS, it is an FBI program used to obtain profiles or DNA from crime scenes and compare it against DNA profiles from other crime scenes. It also stores records of convicted offenders and arrestees. CODIS is able to generate investigative leads in cases when a match is obtained. Earlier this year, authorities began working with a genealogist named Colleen Fitzpatrick. Colleen has been working as a scientist and a geology expert since 1986. She even coined the term forensic genealogy. In 2017, she co-founded a DNA Doe project, which has the aim of identifying dead adults for their families. Due to the Huntington police working with Colleen, they were able to crack the 52-year-old case of the 26-year-old Jane Doe. Anita has been buried in an unmarked grave at Newport Beach Cemetery for more than half a century. Since she has been identified, investigators took her remains back to Maine and even stayed to attend her official memorial service. Among the evidence collected at Anita's crime scene, a single cigarette butt was collected and filed away as evidence. In 2010, the Huntington police sent the sample off to the lab to be processed and a partial male DNA match was obtained and matched the DNA from Anita's sexual assault kit. Unfortunately, at that time, no suspect matched the profile. 
Eventually, the Orange County DA used investigative genetic genealogy to identify the DNA profile to a family tree. In the suspected family tree, a man by the name of Johnny Crisco stood out. Johnny was not initially ever considered a suspect in the killing of Anita, but he did have a very checkered past. Crisco was in the army for three years before he was discharged for failing a routine psychological exam. The exam diagnosed him with having positive aggressive reaction, which was defined as having a pattern of being too quick to anger and impulsivity. Crisco was 28 at the time of the murder. Unfortunately, he died of throat cancer in 2015 and will never stand trial for his crime. On August 31, 1983, the nude body of a 19-year-old Susan Lee Eads was found in a ditch near a vacant lot between NASA Road 1 and Elm Street in Seabrook, Texas. Susan had been sexually assaulted and strangled. Police had very few pieces of evidence from the start which resulted in the case immediately going cold. A piece of Susan's clothing was found in the same vacant lot, and her car was located in the parking lot of the Gulf State's yacht boat store near the area she was discovered. The night of her death, Susan was seen at a local bar called Jason's Club. She was spotted dancing with a mysterious man. Police were able to develop a sketch based off witness sightings, but it is unclear if this is the person responsible for her death. She was seen leaving the bar alone, however, another witness claimed a man followed shortly after and was heading in the same direction of Susan. Growing up, Susan was a very outgoing and friendly child. As a young adult, she began working towards a career as a model. To support her dream, she worked as a waitress at the Prickly Pear Bar in Webster, Texas. She also worked a part-time job at Charlie's Bar in the Soul Bay. The last time Susan was seen was leaving her shift at her part-time job. When she left, she was wearing her Clear Lake High School class ring and a gold necklace. These items were not recovered from her body or her vehicle throughout the investigation. Many tips were called in which resulted in promising leads, but none led to an arrest. While the investigation was underway, Susan's mother began receiving calls from a strange man. Most times, he would call and hang up. When Susan's mother informed the police about the calls, they developed a plan to wait and record any incoming phone calls in case the man calling was the one responsible for her daughter's death. One day, the man started speaking and the police started recording. The caller claimed he had pictures of the Eads family and expressed his want to show the photos to Susan's mother. When asked if the pictures were taken before or after Susan's death, he refused to answer. The stranger claimed his name was Bill and that at the time he lived in Houston on Telephone Road. Although multiple conversations were had with the man who claimed to be Bill, he would always hang up before the police could track the call. Bill also never followed through with his plans to show the supposed photos to Susan's mother. Four years after Susan's death, the Seabrook police received a promising tip but hit a dead end. Anthony Allen Shore, who is known as the tourniquet killer, was arrested in 2003. The hopes that his DNA would match the collected DNA from Susan's crime scene were high, but ultimately weren't aligned. 17 years later, in May 2020, the person responsible for the death of Susan Eads was named by the Texas Rangers of the Seabrook Police Department and the FBI. Arthur Raymond Davis was identified utilizing DNA research, including scientific examinations by the Texas DPS Crime Lab. Davis was a Vietnam veteran and local boat captain. Police ultimately identified him with the DNA samples and the clothing used to strangle Susan. Once the sample returned a match, the information was turned over to the FBI for in-depth forensic genealogy and ancestry profiles, 
Davis was identified through his relative Arthur Ray Davis, who was just a young child at the time of the murder. Arthur claimed to be estranged with Davis, even as a child, and was nothing but cooperative with the officers investigating the case. Arthur Raymond Davis was killed in a one-vehicle traffic crash in January 1984, less than a mile from where Susan's body was discovered, and roughly four months after her murder. On March 9, 1970, the body of a woman was found dumped on the side of Highway 128 in Boulder County. The body was identified as Betty Lee Jones early on. She had been shot multiple times. The body was discovered just after 8.30 a.m. by two Colorado Department of Transportation workers. Along with the gunshot wounds, she also had been found sexually assaulted and strangled. Jones was last seen alive around 3.30 p.m. the previous day, in front of her home located in Denver at 12th and York Street. Her and her husband, Robert Ray Jones, had only been living in their new home for nine days before her murder. The couple had been married for a year and had been known to argue frequently. The last time Betty was seen, her and her husband were in the middle of an argument in front of her home. During the argument, Robert got in his car, pulled out the driveway, and began driving away from the home. He had noticed in his rearview mirror that Betty got into a blue 1961 or 1962 Chevrolet Malibu. Concerned, he turned around the block to intercept the vehicle. After a full lap around the block, she and the car were gone. 36 years later, in 2006, the cold case was reopened and the evidence collected at the crime scene was resubmitted to the Colorado Borough of Investigation. A male DNA profile was developed but did not match any profiles in the National Combined DNA Index System database. Even with little to go on, police were able to put together six suspects, including her at the time husband, Robert Ray Jones. All suspects had their DNA tested, and all were not a match. Thirteen years later, in 2019, the suspect's DNA was submitted to a private lab called Bode Technologies, where a profile was ultimately developed. As with the earlier cases, forensic genealogy was key in putting together an ancestral family tree. All offspring in the family tree were eliminated, except one daughter, who only has one record in a 1957 Denver directory. The Colorado Borough of Investigation, who was also working on the genealogy, was able to further identify the woman, her husband, and their two sons. The sons would have been in their 20s at the time of the murder and lived in Denver. Out of the two sons, only one was alive in 2019. The other was deceased by 1977. The living son was contacted, interviewed, and a sample of his DNA was tested. Throughout their conversation with the suspect, a third estranged brother was identified named Paul, who was not known to be alive or deceased. His whereabouts were also unknown. The living brother's DNA was compared against the DNA collected from Betty's crime scene. This resulted in a close familial match to the suspect. The missing brother was quickly identified as Paul Leroy Martin, who had died in June 2019. His remains were buried in the Fort Logan National Cemetery. Police were allowed to exhume the remains for further DNA testing, and on April 9th, official DNA from Paul Leroy Martin was submitted for processing to the lab. The suspect's DNA sample collected from Betty's body was a match to the DNA obtained from the remains of Paul Leroy Martin. Paul had no known connection to Betty, and a close family member who was living at the time said that Martin's name was not familiar to her, nor did she recall Betty dating anyone at the time of her death. A murder charge will be filed if the district attorney determines the DNA analysis produced through the investigation can be proven without a reasonable doubt. Paul Leroy Martin was able to live out the remainder of his days without having to face the law of his crimes. Please like, comment, and subscribe. If you have any cases that need to be more widely publicized, please message us directly or email us at contactrank at gmail.com. We always reply.